What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. By the way, you can find uh, the podcast Impact of Influence. It is co-hosted by Matt Harris and his partner Seton Tucker covering the Alec Murdoch saga for uh, darn near what almost uh, is it over a year, Matt? June of 2021. Yeah, over a year. So, uh, all right. I watched some of the uh, trial this morning when Buster Murdoch took the stand uh, so we can get to that. But first, uh, two two real quick points. We had a juror, uh, another juror go down. And then you had the defense attorney, Jim Griffin, uh, kind of got a talking to from the judge. What was what was, what was that about? Um, he did get a talking to, and I wish I could tell you. That's the, I haven't had time to, to look at what oh, okay. I, do. I, I know it was about a tweet. Right. Um, uh, and I was going to go back and check that, and I have not. I have not either. Uh, so I just saw that he got uh, talked to by the judge, and then they went right into the, the, the testimony. So I did not yeah. have time to go back. But he apparently retweeted some article from the Washington Post, and the judge did not. He didn't. He didn't take too kindly to that. He said it popped up in his Twitter feed. So I guess we know that the judge is checking Twitter. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so he said, like, hey, you, you shouldn't be uh, even retweeting this sort of thing because I guess it was a I guess it was a piece critical of uh, the state's attorneys. I, yes. Yeah. I, I know the article that they're referring to. Okay. Kathleen Parker, I believe, wrote it. Gotcha. Uh, and then the juror, what just had uh, is out sick or had a doctor's appointment or something, I guess. And so they swapped out another alternate. Do you know how many they're at now? How many do they have left? I believe they have two alternates left. Oh my goodness. Okay, it's getting close. All right. So you're very close. Yeah, Buster Murdoch takes the stand. He is the oldest son, the only surviving son. Uh, and so they first have him up there, and as you would expect, you know, character witness kind of stuff. Dad coached all of his teams, his baseball games. Uh, Mom and Dad didn't miss any of the games. Uh, there was, uh, the, you know, they used him to enter into evidence, essentially, or to present sort of alternate explanations for a lot of the things that the state had presented, like lots of guns and ammo all over the place. We leave guns. Paul really left yeah. guns everywhere. Uh, we would park around back. Did you find that to be, because we talked about that yesterday, that uh, when they went to Grandma's, uh, that they would park around back, much like Alec Murdoch did the night of the murders? That that was one of the important points that came out, because that was what they left you hanging with uh, on the prosecution side when they finally got the stuff from GM from the OnStar that he had, and they called it, went around the house to a little wooded area. And upon seeing the pictures, it doesn't look like a wooded area, at least from that angle. And Buster said, yeah, they'd pull around back there. They wanted to go into the back entrance. Which goes into the kitchen, and uh, Grandma's yeah. room is right there. So they, yeah. so yeah. at least it gives, it, it's, if jurors are looking for an explanation, it checks a box where they can have a reasonable explanation for why he pulled around back. Um, yeah. What And then uh, did Alec leave his phone uh, did he misplace his phone? Did he put it down and, and walk around without it? And Buster said yes. Um, and then he same said... Thing with, same thing with Paul. They both would forget their phone sometimes. Right, which that might explain why he why the phone didn't show any movement for like an hour uh, before he got in the car and went to Grandma's on the night of the murder. Um, right, right. And then the changing of the clothes and the shower. I thought this was important. 
I think I thought it was too. Um, first of all, he pointed out that Alex showered a lot. He basically said because he was a fat guy. <laughs> right, <laughs> which I can tell you, as a formerly fat guy, you do sweat a lot more when you're when you got you know the the meat insulation around you. It's June in the Low Country. Um, he he said Alec was much bigger then. He said uh, Dad was a lot bigger, uh, and that he would often take showers uh, and change clothes. And along those lines, he talked about how. After, I mean, maybe I'm skipping around on you, but after uh, the murders, Alec nor Buster spent an overnight stay at Moselle. So Alec was living, and he listed like five or six places. He was, you know, he was bouncing around the family river house, John Marvin's house, his brother's house, uh, in his car, um, at the, uh, uh, the mom's house, uh, at his sister's house, and so the point being that he had clothes scattered all over the place. And so how, you know, it's not their job to keep track of what shirt he was wearing in that Snapchat video. But they never addressed the fact that, uh, was it Blanca who was asked about the housekeeper was asked by Alec about that quote, Snapchat video that might cause some problems for him. And she knew that he was wearing that seafoam colored shirt in that video. And they, they never have produced that shirt or the pants. He well, did change that day. That. Yeah. They made a point on that. They, they brought up the picture and the, the, they asked Buster what color is that shirt? And he's like, blue. Is it seafoam? He's like, no. Does he, Alec have a seafoam shirt? He's like, I might. I don't know. And then he asked him about Vineyard Vines, because remember, Blanca was saying that Alec was saying, wasn't I wearing a Vineyard Vine shirt? And uh, Buster's like, I don't think he owns any Vineyard Vine shirts. I've never seen him in one. So it kind of, in a way, put doubt on Blanca's memory, because if Alec's trying to trip, trip her up or trip, you know, say what I'm wearing, why would he pick a shirt that Buster claims he never had? Right. But, how, but, but do you know all the shirts your dad owns? No. I mean, yeah, right. Like, uh, yeah. So I, I didn't find that that part to be particularly strong. And I also wonder, you're going to tell the jurors that the color they're seeing on the video screen is not the color that it is, right? Because we think it's seafoam. Yeah, I said that from the beginning. I didn't say it to you, maybe, but I'm like, that is not seafoam. That's not even close. That's blue. Right. So, so yeah. So if people people are, I, I think, are not going to 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 take what he he sees as the color to be what they see as the color. Um, now the other thing on the showers, uh, I thought this point was uh, critical because they made a big point of how there was shower, there was water in the shower the next day after the murders at the Moselle hunting property. But, uh, Buster said they went back when they came back the following morning, that's where they showered that following morning. So that was probably from them when the housekeeper came in. Well, and when you say them, he said he showered, his girlfriend showered and Alex showered. And that he then, uh, the night before, he packed a bag of clothes, which would explain why there was a T-shirt on the floor instead yep. of Alec rushing around trying to, you know, change clothes after he murdered his, uh, his wife and son. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, it's coming from Buster, but I think he poked some holes in some of the stories. I, I, I no question yeah. to me. Well, he raises, so again, it's just, it's, you got to get one juror to have reasonable doubt 
And if you can give an explanation for these things that the state has presented, then you're much uh, more likely to get that one juror at least, right? So I I thought this was also interesting that they did not ask him about the kennel video, where they didn't ask him to identify. I don't think either side asked him to identify whether or not it's his dad's voice in that video. Neither side asked. And there could be reasons. I mean, it could be that the prosecution, they don't need any more people to say it was Alex's voice. And if you throw that out there, what if Buster says, I'm not, I can't swear. Maybe right. it was. Maybe, you, know, you, well, you don't want to you know, ask the question you don't know the answer to. And I think they've had it confirmed enough that it's Alex's voice. Right. If you get the son to say, oh, no, I know my dad's voice and that's not my dad, then that yeah. might outweigh in a juror's mind all of the other people that said, oh, yeah, that's totally him. Um, and so I? why even risk it? Right. Exactly. They also uh, talked about security. This yeah. was uh, there were some objections over this, so I'm not sure what all uh, kind of got through. But they talked about how Buster said that he and his father did, in fact, talk about security for themselves because Buster was living with his girlfriend here in Rock Hill and working in Charlotte, and he just felt he didn't have to, uh, he didn't need that because uh, the security systems at his girlfriend's house and where he worked had security systems, so he didn't feel like he needed uh, security detail. But yes, but Harry, our, our Griffin got it in before the objection because um, it technically shouldn't be in because he said, uh, "Did Alec offer you security?" And they objected, saying, "You know, hearsay." But we heard it. Mm-hmm. You know, we we so that was. I think that can be seen as interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. And then um, uh, the last thing, and I know court's getting ready to start up again. So real quick. The defense has now, they played some sort of a video and they had an expert come in. I have, I know nothing about this except that they did like some sort of a recreation. Do you, do you have much time do you have? Yeah, go ahead. Well, you got like two minutes. Okay. So, um, the shooting incident reconstruction, 3D, Harpootling's not done with him yet. And the prosecution hasn't had a shot at him yet. But basically this guy says there's no way Alex was the shooter unless he held the gun below his kneecap. He said the shooter was anywhere between 5'2 and 5'4 of Maggie. We haven't gotten into Paul yet. Of Maggie, based on all the trigonometry and expertise of this guy, who I think is out of Raleigh. He went to NC State, too. Um, This guy is also, uh, I heard at the beginning, an acoustics engineering specialist, which gives... Me, makes me think that we might even hear that if Alec was in the shower, if he left it at, say, 845, got in there at 846 to his house, only a minute, I'm guessing he's going to say it's very possible he didn't hear the gunshots. I think that's coming. Mm. But, the, but the fact that he point blank said, it, uh, you know, uh, more likely than not, uh, someone six foot four, did the shooting? He says no way. Five, five, two to five, four um, is is how his calculations come out. Now again, prosecution hasn't had the run of this guy, um, but that it was pretty pretty uh, telling because they, you know he they spent the money the three D they had the, the two different shooters from the two different measurements that the sled officer had. They used the sled officer's measurements. So they tried two different measurements, and they like, okay, this one wouldn't work. He would have been here. Here's where the shells were, a 3D look. And th- they were based on the bullet that went through the blackout that went through the dog kennel and through the 
the quail cage or bird cage, whatever they're, you know, bird pen, whatever they're calling it. Based on that, that's how you came up with the height of the shooter. So were those bullets that passed through Maggie's body first? That's, yes. All right, so then there's, I think that's where the state will probably go with it. They'll probably say, well. Could it be deflected? Exactly. All right, Matt Harris, I appreciate it. I know court's getting ready to start. It probably already is uh, back in session. Catch his podcast, Impact of Influence, on your favorite podcasting platform. Matt, appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Bye, buddy. Bye. Um, Let me go over here and get, all right, let's get Shirley on the program. Hello, Shirley. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey. How are you? You caught me in the backyard planting flowers. (laughs) Oh, okay. What are you planting? Huh? What are you planting? Blueberries. Oh, nice. Blueberries. Nice. Anyway, let me ask you a question. Have you heard about this new committee, PEPSC, that are going to be evaluating teachers? EPSC? It's P-E-P-S-C. Well, I like I like the sound of it because it starts with P-E-T, and that's almost my full, that's almost my name. I mean, it's crazy though, Pete. It's crazy because now the teachers are already being evaluated, and you have so many teachers that have already left. Mm-hmm. And that I'm hearing from teachers that are saying we're being evaluated already. Why do we have to be evaluated again? We're short of teachers. We're having to cover several classrooms. And now we're being evaluated again? I mean, it's ludicrous. Well, is, is it ludicrous because it's the number of evaluations, or is there something specific about this proposed evaluation that's objectionable? Yeah, I want you to look at it when you get a chance, when you get a moment, because it's saying something about a license, you know, determining who has licenses and who needs to have licenses. That's already being done. And I think the association, Teachers Association, is not very happy with it. Because, I mean, I've talked to teachers, and you've got kids that are running out of your class throwing up in the trash cans because they're on drugs. I mean, you have drug addicts in there. You got, And now they got to be evaluated again. Right. And they're, short, they're in short supply. Right. Okay, right. But, Shirley, that's why I'm asking, is it the concept... Uh, is it the concept of an evaluation, or is it the number of evaluations? I think it's both. It's so, both. all right. So, yeah. I mean, I think you could argue one. I think. I mean, I think there's a fair debate about how many evaluations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I'll go to the first offer then, which was the concept of an evaluation. Do you think it is problematic to submit teachers to a single yeah. evaluation? Yeah. Again, yes. Really? Because with the stress that they're under right now, Pete, mm-hmm. I mean, they don't need any more additional stress. I mean, just if you're not in the classroom, you don't really know what goes on. But I talk to teachers every week, and I know it's it's a zoo. Mm-hmm. And to, for you coming in with a pad and pencil, you have no idea <laughs> what is going on in those classrooms. I mean, who's doing the? But who's doing the evaluation? It's a bunch of people from all over North Carolina. You got the Van Dempsey. Dempsey from Watson College of Education in Wilmington, who is the chair of this committee, and uh, he's going to be chairing it up and setting up a blueprint for uh, evaluations and how they should. I know they're trying to recruit new teachers. That's what the first priority should be to recruit new teachers because they really need help. Okay, right. Uh, I know. I I got you, but um. And there's a whole there are a host of reasons for why uh, teachers aren't uh, are in short supply. Let's say, but um, but so this is it sounds like then they are trying to construct some sort of a review 
or a, a uh, an evaluation process? It's not being done right now. They're trying to build some sort of a process. I, I wish you would go read this because I well, I will. But I'm asking you what you know because you sound like you know something about it. So that's why I'm asking. I read the blueprint, but I can't figure out why it's even needed. I mean, they I can tell you why it's needed. Point this, point that, and. Uh, what how, on your effectiveness in the classroom? Right. I mean, here's the thing: if you don't have enough teachers, yeah, of course your effectiveness is going to go down. That's common sense 101. Okay, if you don't have enough teachers to cover these classrooms, and you're coming in evaluating the few that you do have, it it just doesn't make sense to me. Right. So, and then somebody doesn't have anything to do, and they want to lord over people. Tell them how to do their job when you don't even know what goes on on a daily basis. You have no idea. Right. Well, I, I'm me, not. I'm not so sure that the people yeah. who would be crafted. I mean, so the, the, you got to you got to differentiate between the creation of uh, an evaluation system versus how that system actually operates. Because if there's an evaluation system uh, that is run by, let's say, fellow teachers, right, fellow educators, then they would actually know those pressures. But no, it sounds they're, like they're not. Yeah, they're right, they're but it not. sounds like you, right. But it sounds like you don't even care how it's implementing uh, implemented. You're objecting to just the concept, right? You, uh, just any kind yeah. of an evaluation. Just well, all right, no, so, no, they're already being evaluated. They were evaluated. So keep last that. Week. But my thing is, so keep that level people, of. These are people that are coming from corporations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that have no idea what it's like to spend a day in a classroom. I mean, you can't tell me, I mean, you might be good at what you do. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like going to New York and saying, I'm going to tell you how to run your police department because I run a police department in, in, um, say, Eaton or Wilmington. Right, there are similarities, though. You know, and why is the pilot program in Charlotte, I mean, if it's such a great program and the General Assembly approves it, why not start it in Raleigh? Wait, are you well, saying this is in... I thought you said this was in South Carolina. No, no, no. It's in North Carolina. It's a oh, program. North... It's start it in Charlotte. Yes, I am, a, I am aware that the teachers union in, Char- in uh, North Carolina is opposed to, uh, to, to these ideas. I am aware all of that. These, all these evaluations, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, they are against all of the evaluations, yes. That is well, the argument. They don't want any kind of accountability. I, I, I agree. Yeah, they do. Yeah, no, they do. not really. You've got you to understand no, that they don't. if you're not a teacher, you have no idea what goes on in the classroom. That's not true either. Yeah. No, that's not true either because, like, you say, like, you're not a teacher, right? I know because I talk to teachers all so the time. So do I. Yeah, so do but I. Some of them don't. Some of them don't. Right, right. So don't. do I. But so you and I have basically a very similar kind of uh, understanding because we both talk to teachers. So... Well, if you're talking to a teacher that has students that are above average, like if you're I don't. talking to a teacher across town, South Charlotte, I'm not. Holler, and you're talking to kids in Cochrane, it's going to be a different conversation. Why is that? Because of the poverty level in those neighborhoods. And it's going to be a different level. They don't have the computers. How about, how about West Mech? How about West Charlotte? Mm-hmm. How about West Charlotte? Does that Same teachers put, they, that's a poverty does school. that count does that count so so a teacher that talks to me that works there that's okay is that an accurate well, no, reflection I talk to any of the teachers but I'm just saying the schools are different they're very different right okay but anyway just look it up and then come back one day and then we'll have another oh yeah well yeah it's working it's yeah it's working its way through the process I appreciate the call Shirley I thought you were talking about South Carolina I don't know anything about that but uh, this one yeah I, I suspected it might have been North Carolina uh oh we have an update on bumper car 
Beth Wood. I don't believe that's me. What was that? Was that me? Did I do that? I don't have anything that would play that. Uh, that was weird. Okay. All right, so we have an update on bumper car Beth Wood. Or Beth bumper car Wood. Beth bumper... All right, whatever. Um, Beth Wood, the auditor. More than two months after leaving her state-issued vehicle partially parked up on the hood of another parked vehicle <laughs> on South Salisbury Street in downtown Raleigh, she still is not answering questions about what happened. WRALTV sent multiple questions to her attorney, as well as to the auditor's office, about what happened on December 8th at the crash. Among the questions were uh, what happened leading up to the crash, why did she leave the running vehicle at the scene, and uh, was she drinking alcohol that night? So I think, yes, she was probably drinking alcohol, and that's why she left the vehicle running, and uh, what happened leading up to the crash was she was drinking alcohol and at the party. I think that's my bet, just because you don't flee the scene of an accident like that if you haven't been drinking. If you're sober, you just stay there and you wait for the cops to show up and you don't throw away your political career. After weeks of silence from both parties, aside from a statement released by Wood's attorney that did not answer any of the questions, WRAL investigates, approached Wood outside of her office, uh, Cullen Broder says, hey, can you talk to us? And she said, all right, here's the deal. It never works to talk to you guys. No matter what I say, no matter how I try to tell it, it never comes out in the media the way I say it. So for 15 years, I have figured out that talking to y'all doesn't work for me, so I'm just not going to do that today. But you just did. You were just talking to us. You already broke your rule. Browder then says, but we've asked you specific questions. And she says, because it never comes out, no matter what I say, no matter how it really is, it never shows up in the media that way, so I'm not going to talk. And then she gets in her car and drives away and runs up on top of another vehicle, flees the scene. No, I'm kidding about that last part. But um, this is hilarious to me. When, when Beth Wood thinks that WRAL is hostile media, you know it's bad, Right. When the Democrat state auditor believes that she can't get a fair shake from WRAL, who was just asking her what should be obvious questions, and you can't answer, what, what do you think, like, were you drinking alcohol that night? That's a yes or no question. Now, admittedly, there might be a follow-up. If she says, yes, I had one drink, two drinks, ten drinks, whatever, there would be a follow-up. If she says, yes, you ask her how many. How long were you drinking? Whatever. But if the answer is no, then you can answer that question. How does it not come? What do you think that what do you think doesn't come out of that that Q&A in their report? They're literally literally videotaping the entire thing. I shouldn't say literally videotaping because it's not tape. It's just digital. So they're recording everything that's happening. And also, I would point out that when Beth Wood would publish her audits on various state agencies, Everybody covered them. She would give press conferences. She did interviews. Her office called my show. Her office called my show and booked her on this show like a year ago. 
But maybe it's different because it's live radio and we can't, you know, selectively edit the audio, at least during the live segment. But, uh, no, I I think it's pretty clear why she doesn't want to answer the questions. She wouldn't even show up for the last Council of State uh, meeting like a week or so ago. Council of State, or it's the 10 statewide elected seats, right? Governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, treasurer. Uh, I shouldn't even have started counting. Well, actually, I didn't start counting. So I think I would get four auditors on there. uh, uh, Department of Public Instruction, Ag Commissioner, uh, Insurance Commissioner, right? So you have all 10 of these statewide seats. Republicans have six of them. Democrats have four. Beth Wood's a Democrat. And uh, she did not show up in person for the Council of State meeting uh, about a week or so ago. Probably because she didn't want to have to answer any questions that the media would throw at her while she was there or after she was leaving. Probably because State Auditor Beth Woods' continued use of a state-assigned vehicle has come under scrutiny from officials in charge of the motor fleet. The officials temporarily suspended her individual vehicle assignment after her hit-and-run crash back in December. They are now examining her subsequent use of another car that was assigned to her office, including her personal, uh, her possible personal use of the state car. So after she, she drove the other one up on top of the parked vehicle on the side of the road that was parked there, right? She turned into it and drove up on the side of it and then fled the scene after, like, attending this Christmas party at the law office of Rufus Edmiston, the former attorney general of the state, big-time Democrat donor guy, and um, who who apparently had people at the uh, in the lobby area that were saying, get her out of here, because that got caught on tape. Somebody was shooting video from a, a, f- a smartphone from the uh, from the car. And so they whisk her away. So we know it was her. We also know it was her because it's her car. It's like got, I think, a three or four, whatever, like council of state number on it. So we know it's her car. It's the state car. So. Normally, after you get into a hit and run like that, they lock you down. You can't have any more state cars because you obviously (laughs) don't know how to handle them. And uh, she apparently kept driving another one in potential violation of state law and agency regulations. So the director of the Motor Fleet Management, Robert Riddle, uh, sent her a letter saying it's not available to her uh, through her office for personal use. Uh, which would be considered misuse of a state-owned car. Now, again, this is important because this is what she actually audits other state agencies when they do wrong like this. Remember the stories about the highway patrol people that would take their vehicle, or not highway patrol, but um, well, I guess some highway patrol, but uh, Department of uh, Public Safety, they would drive their car from Raleigh all the way to like Asheville. Remember those stories? Yeah, Yeah, she went after those people. So the North Carolina State Auditor Beth Wood uh, runs from WRAL, says uh, she never gets a fair shake in the media, which is ridiculous. And uh, she says that they never, uh, whatever she tells them, it never comes out the way that uh, she said it. So I guess she's accusing them of selectively editing or something. I'm not really sure. Uh, We did get a couple weeks ago, actually, video that she got into that state-owned vehicle the night that she wrecked it. Uh, She got into that car with somebody else. The video showed her walking with someone else down a Hillsborough street. The two of them get into a 2021 black Toyota Camry. And um, it was at nine o'clock 
the night of the wreck, it looks like a uh, there was video from like the sidewalk, and then I think if I recall correctly, it was like in the parking slot or in the space. And yes, she did park uh, nose first; she did not back in. And um, she had attended a holiday gathering for a couple hours before that crash. So there was a guy that walked with her to the car. He got in the passenger seat, and then they pulled out. And then the next thing we see is the, her car up on top of a you know parallel parked car on the street. Then uh, she's whisked away. Uh, she and then the next day she's apparently driving another car after she reported the crash to the motor pool to the motor fleet. The state's motor fleet management is under under the Department of Administration, and it told her on January 24th that her vehicle assignment was temporarily suspended. Due to the ongoing investigation, the agency's regulations outline that a vehicle assignment can be recalled if abuse of the vehicle occurs, and that includes reckless disregard for the proper operation of the vehicle or if substantiated violations of motor vehicle laws are committed. Well, I think the fleeing the scene is pretty substantiated. Um, Beth Wood, as auditor has cited several times different people and organizations under her uh, purview in her tenure for abusing privileges from the state motor fleet. In 2016, uh, Lucille Sherman writes at Axios.com that a director for North Carolina's Department of Public Safety broke state rules when he used his state vehicle to make trips to an animal hospital, a country club, and a hair appointment. The agency, Wood recommended at the time, should consider disciplining the director of the department's private protective services division for using his state-assigned vehicle for commuting and personal use. Fast forward six years, right? Wood is now supposed to be holding other officials and agencies accountable, but she broke commuting laws, according to a letter from the director of the Motor Fleet Management. She also appears to have broken rules barring use of a state-owned vehicle. Um, Also, Wood drove a state vehicle to and from work and at least one doctor's appointment, church, and to pick up a prescription in January. That according to the vehicle logs. Those trips happened weeks after Wood wrecked a different state vehicle in downtown Raleigh. So she was driving this vehicle around for weeks. Wood has released at least five other audits since 2016 that found agencies had poor oversight of state-assigned vehicles. Her ability to commute and use a state vehicle for personal reasons undetected and unaddressed for weeks shows that oversight might still be lacking. (laughs) Wood has made no indication that she plans to resign and has provided few details and then uh, obviously ran away from WRAL. Uh, Paul Specht at WRAL, he went and talked to Gary Pierce. Gary Pierce was an advisor to former Democratic Governor Jim Hunt. And what he recommended is uh, basically come clean. You got to do something. You got to say something. He said, you can't hide this kind of thing. The more you put it off, the worse it gets. Um, Let's see here. What else? Uh, Wood is one of only four Democrats on state council. The building in the video is occupied in part by Edmiston and Webb Law Firm. Rufus Edmiston, a partner in the firm and a former state attorney general and secretary of state, was hosting a holiday party. 
Edmiston has refused to respond to WRAL's requests for comment as well. And then they quote somebody who knows them and they're like, oh, they're such great people. I'm a Republican. I love them. Like, I don't understand that. Brad Crone, president of Campaign Connections, has advised Democrats and Republicans. He says it's going to be extremely difficult for her moving forward to be effective in her job because she has broken the public trust. It's not the crime. It's the cover up. All right. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. (laughs) 